I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by Tink. Lauren Passell and her innovative PR company, Tink, are book-obsessed and podcast-obsessed. Tink specializes in getting authors on podcast tours. Forbes called it the, quote, the first podcast PR company for authors. This is like the coolest idea, I have to say. Podcasting is a new wild world, and pitching to podcasters like me, I guess, is an art. So Tink specializes in setting authors up for success. To learn more, you can visit tinkmedia.com or subscribe to Lauren's podcast newsletter at podcastthenewsletter.com. So definitely check out Lauren. She's amazing. And for any authors out there, you should definitely check her out for getting your book onto fantastic podcasts like this one and so many other book podcasts out there and all types of podcasts. I'm here today with Cecile David-Weil, who is a French-American author born and based in New York. She's a mother of three and a grandmother of seven. She studied literature at La Sorbonne in Paris. She is the author of two novels in English called Crush, under the name Cecile de la Bomme, and The Suitors. She was a regular contributor to the French magazine Le Point, Le Point, Le Point, P-O-I-N-T, I don't know, can't speak French, with a column entitled Letters from New York. Her latest book is nonfiction, part memoir and part guide, called Parents Under the Influence, Words of Wisdom from a Former Bad Mother. Welcome, Cecile. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you, Zibi, for having me. Of course, my pleasure. And I love this French accent of yours. Like, <laughs> I love it. It feels so exotic. Like oh. we're so having such a chic little, you know, like we're having tea or so. I don't know. <laughs> That's very kind of you. I, I'm a little, I'm a little sad, nevertheless, because I think I'm having a great American accent, and then each time I'm said, I understand that I don't. <laughs> I mean, it's great. Regardless. <laughs> so can you please tell listeners what Parents Under the Influence is about? And the subtitle is Words of Wisdom from a Former Bad Mother, which I still find hard to believe that you were a bad mother. So, <laughs> Well, in fact, it's part memoir and part guide. And the point of the book was to share my experience of, as a parent and to have it cross-examined by the specialist to which I talked during the very re uh, serious research I did for years, and I put all this in a very regular mom words. So uh, the book is about the huge gap between the usual stuff we're told about parenting, which uh, things like all you need is love or trust your gut, mm -hmm. and the reality of parenting, which I found out from my own experience is much more complicated anyway for me. Of course, love is totally uh, indispensable. It's crucial, but it's not enough. You need also, as in any relationship, I think, guidelines and advice and work, because love can hurt even if it's well-intended. As for the gut part, I thought, you know, I thought it was the expression of our love for our children when I was thinking, trust your gut. But in fact, I found out that it is more the reproduction of our own upbringing. And that's gut is reproduction. So if we had amazing parents, which happens, <laughs> it's a good thing because we don't have any problems. We reproduce very good behaviors. We bond with our kids. We enjoy being with them. And we give them value, structure, everything. And then we don't need to read the book. 
But when we have... Don't say that. Everyone, you should not. <laughs> now you're telling people not to read your book. No, no, no. Well, it is a rare thing <laughs> to have absolutely amazing parents. But if you have more regular type parents that are not flawless, which is, of course, the, the major part of, of people, uh, chances are that you have suffered. I have suffered during my childhood, even if it's not in a really spectacular way or, or major way. And that suffering still acts in us, in me, and the wounded child is, you know, acting up and making us reproduce our childhood, even the, the very things that we thought and we, we re really didn't want to do. And it, it is a very distressful thing to realize uh, because we would like to think of ourselves as parents who are, you know, parenting with free will. And I was, I was familiar with the notions of unconscious mind. I mean, everybody is. We know that we all are shaped by our childhood, that we have unconscious mechanisms and pattern that impact our, our life. But we don't want, we don't think, and we don't want to think about the fact that it could interfere with our parenting since mm -hmm. it is for us the place where we are supposed to be the most mature. So it is super disquieting. And when you say under the influence, when you, what you really mean is we are under the influence of our parents, right? Good or bad, right? That's part of it. Yeah. We're under we, the influence of the examples that they set, the way we think we're supposed to parent, or what you were saying before, having a, a radically opposite approach to parenting because of the way they modeled behavior for us. Yes. And that's, uh, we are, yes, we are totally molded by our childhood. And uh, some, some things are really good. And it's a way to, to transmit cultures, values that works because we mimic our parents. And it's most often very fine. But when we do reproduce the behaviors that really made us suffer, then it becomes to be a problem. And I had a hint that maybe it could happen because I knew about the thing about the unconscious mind. And I thought that the good idea would be to do the opposite of what was really, you know, a problem in my, in my childhood. And in fact, I met many people who don't speak about that to their friends, but they vow to themselves in a very solemn and deep way mm -hmm. when they have children, they, they vow to not do what they have suffered from. Right. And they, they think, and it's, in fact, it's the only thing that they really think about because mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of ways of thinking about parenthood. We don't have many tools to, to think right. about it. So that's the only visceral thing that we think. And I thought it was a good idea. <laughs> and in fact, it turned out not to be. In fact, the very idea that we want to do the opposite is the sign that we are still very much under the spell of the suffering that we had. Mm -hmm. And that we are going to parent with us and this suffering in mind and not our children. Mm -hmm. And... You know, the funny thing is that, for instance, my parents were of the generation that really didn't get or know that children really need us in a very, very close way to be living with them and, and bond. And it was not that generation. They were very kind, but in a more distant, absent 
way. And they gave lots of good things and structures and values, but the bonding part was a little lacking. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to be very much with my kids. And I'm going to be all the time with my kids, the most I can be. And I thought it was great because what could be said against that idea? It's a great idea. The only thing is that I didn't know how to behave with my kids because I wasn't used to being with my parents. So I didn't know how to behave with my kids. And since I had lots of reasons to be nervous because I didn't find I was doing so well. I was nervous and I was not engaging in a very enjoyable way with them. And so, in fact, either I was bored or they were bored. Anyway, we didn't really connect. And the time we spent was rarely a very good quality time. So they felt as lonely as if I wasn't there. And the paradox was, I felt lonely during my childhood because the, my parents weren't there. And my children felt lonely because I was too much there, because I didn't know that I was not supposed to do the opposite, but do better. And since I didn't know very much how to be, to enjoy myself with them, I had to learn that. And I had to maybe stay less with them but do only enjoyable things and the usual stuff you're supposed to do with them. That's of course, but that would have been a revelation that I would like to have had beforehand. And that's what the book is about. The, the very ideas that make you do mistakes are the ideas of parents who want to do well. That I find very unfair because it's not the bad parents, the bad mother in, in the way that, you know, we do it on purpose or we're bad persons or we couldn't care less. The bad parent I was, was a parent who tried too hard without self-knowledge, without self-awareness and without tools to understand what was happening to me. Wow. So what made you want to take all the time out of your life to turn this into a book and share it with everybody else? Well, you know, in fact, as I said, I was very caught up in my distress of not doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. I was, as every parent under the influence, I was very much doing things and regretting them afterwards, snapping at my kids, not being you know, the way I wanted, not parenting the way I wanted to do. So I was really distressed and I was caught up in myself. And so much so that I didn't even look that much at my kids. I was, I was in fact looking at myself being miserable and being not a good mother, but I wasn't looking at them. And one day, and it was well into motherhood because my elder one had was 14, so it was, you know, kind of late. I looked at my kid, I don't know why. Suddenly I, I saw them. I got out of myself and I saw them. And I saw that the three of them were not happy, not thriving, and there was a problem. So I thought, what did I do wrong? You know, when I started, I thought, I'm going to be a great mother. I wanted to be a great mother. I had the time, I had the energy, and I had, you know, the benevolence, I had the goodwill, I had everything. But it turned out to be much more difficult. And I didn't want to address that thing at first because I didn't know how to. So I put it at the back of my head until I've 
I found out, and I discovered that day that they were not doing well. So then I thought, I have to change, but I didn't have a clue what to do. And in fact, I started reading a lot of parenting books. I started going to see shrinks, psychiatrists, and doing a real, you know, a real study of what you're supposed to do. And all the people I went to see who have all this nice talk, don't worry and everything, I said, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. What do you mean when you say, what is it we're supposed to do in a real way? I want number of time. We have to say yes to our kids. Uh, I want actual, very uh, concrete things and answers because all the kind stuff we're told is not helpful. So... The thing I learned during my experience and the thing I learned during that research that really took me uh, 10 years, and the fact that all that I learned made me turn things around, and I really wasn't hopeful that much because I was late. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if I did turn things around in my relation with my kids, that really I have a great relation with them now, and I don't think they're... They have their, you know, their, their problems and their insecurities as everybody, but they are really interesting people. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to meet them if, I, if they weren't my children. So the fact that it worked, what they told me worked. And I thought, you know, I have to share this. I'm, I'm probably not the only one who has the problem of trying too hard and being a... a a bad mother because bad results. Not a bad person, but bad results. And, and in fact, when I changed my behavior, the result came. So I thought, you know, everybody thinks, oh, it's impossible to do it right. It's impossible to be perfect. And I think it's not, a, it's not even a good idea, even if it were possible, because then the children would never want to leave us. So hopefully they have some things that are against us so they can go away and have their own life. But, but it is possible. And, and it is, you know, once you have the tools and you have the right set of mind, you can decide how you want to, to actually parent and there is not one way to parent. It's, you need to choose your way to parent, especially nowadays where families are really different. You have lots, lots of sorts of family and lots of sorts of beliefs and way that you want to raise your kids. But you need, you know, you need to have tools to know how to implement this. And you gave us the tools and you're... Yes, that's what I'm doing in the book. I (laughs) I thought it was also great, by the way, that at the end of the book, after you go in depth into all the different topics, that you have like cheat sheets with like some of the most salient points all laid out. So in case you forget or you want to refer back... They're all right there. So yes. That was it, lovely. It, it, in fact, it's my son because, you know, I wrote this book uh, as a, a grandmother mm-hmm. and my children have children. So I had them participate because some things I had forgotten. Mm-hmm. And my son told me, you know, many parents don't have time or energy to read the, your whole book, even if it is great. And so do, do that at the end, like mm-hmm. the basic points, the what to do, what not to do, because it can be useful. And, uh, and then they could go back to the book if mm-hmm. they want. So. Good, 
Good tips, son. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but let's talk about your writing also. Your novel, The Suitors, which I was telling you earlier, I downloaded on my iPad. I think it was the first book I ever read on an iPad and possibly the last. No, one of the only <laughs> ones. And anytime I only had an iPad in my purse because I often like to read when I'm waiting for anything or whatever, I would read little bits and pieces. So it took me a very long time to read your book, but it stayed with me for so long, like a little friend in my purse or something. <laughs> so I'm also really excited about <laughs> The fact that you wrote that book, and it's still, like, when I, even just seeing the cover, it conjures up the entire scene. Like, it was so real, the, all these people who descend on this beautiful home from France. Actually, I don't know exactly where in France, but that they all come for this weekend. And I don't know, it was a beautiful, very snippet-of-life type time and place. I'm not saying this very well, but... No, anyway. thank you. Well, it was, you know, it. it thank you very much. It, it, it is, a, it's the story of a family house. Mm -hmm. Yes, that is set in Cap d'Antibes in the French Riviera. And it, in fact, it's the story of two sisters who don't want their parents to sell the family estate. That's right. So they have suitors, yes. three possible rich suitors come each for one weekend to check them out yes. and see if they could be possible contenders to, you know, to marry and buy the family estate. And it's a social comedy, and I really had a lot of fun writing it, but also it was something important to me because it is a novel, and, the, the, you know, the characters are made up, but the house isn't. Mm. And it is actually a house of my childhood. And it is a place that I wanted to portrait and to make it stay in something like book that can stay forever. Because it is such a, a way of living that is no longer anywhere. It's, you know, it's like a little downtown abbey in before the 2008 financial <laughs> crisis. And with the, the guests, the staff and the, the all the the menus and the recipes and the and all the yeah the rules of the house and it is also a book about conversation and also about being sisters and the love between two girls you know so it is also something that is close to my heart because it was kind of an homage to a way of living that is no longer not even in this house that we still have in our family, but it's no longer that way. Mm -hmm. And it was also fun because it's about new money and old money. And that house is set in a bay where that family is the only French who stay in the bay because they have Russians and Saudis and Iraqis and Greek and and... They are surrounded by the new money. They they are old money. So when they have mosquitoes, they just lit a candle, whereas the others have very expensive machines to burn mosquitoes with a lot of lights and a lot of noise. And also with the new suitors, the suitors that are new money arriving in the house, it is there is the the, the Wall Street guy and there is the the tech billionaire who loves yoga and vegan <laughs> food. And so it is a yeah, it is a book I like and I'm happy that you like it too. 
And you even wrote a guidebook about New York things you've noticed in New York and French. You have a number of books in French. And yes. So yes. I usually write novels, except for those stories about New York that I wrote for the magazine Le Point. Mm -hmm. And I put myself in the shoes of a newcomer, which I was 15 years ago because I, uh, I was uh, just arrived in New York after being born here and spending, you know, my chi early childhood here. And it was the look on New York that seems so amazingly exotic for, for us French. So that was one nonfiction thing. And otherwise, it's only novels that I write usually. Are you working on anything new, another novel or anything? Yes, or? Yeah. I'm working on a novel right now. And... I'm not, I don't really know what I'm doing, as usually. It, it turns out at one point, I hope. But um, so I'm not very good at talking about it because when I do actually talk about the book I'm writing, when it sounds good, <laughs> and then when I write it, I think it's not as good as when I talked about it. And when, in fact, when I talk about it and it doesn't seem interesting, I think, why on earth am I writing it? So, so I can't actually talk about a book I'm writing, but I think it is the way I make myself think about topics and put my ideas in my head. And I don't know if I would think at all if I wasn't writing. So it's important that I go on. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? No, I wouldn't be that presumptuous. I only have advice about parenting. Great, let's hear parenting advice. I'll take that. <laughs> because, because I turned it around and it works and it worked for me. And, but for the rest, no, I think writing is so difficult and so lonely and so slow for me that, yes, it is wonderful because it's amazing to have the luxury to actually sit in the quiet and, and ask yourself what words you're going to choose. It seems like such an old-fashioned way of living, but it is precious and I love it. But it's also terrible, terribly frustrating not to find the way to say things that you want to say. I'm sure you, you, you have sometimes the feeling. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I can't even remember what words... Things are. <laughs> I, I can't even remember, like, microphone. What's that word? I don't know. Yes. So, yes. It's yes. A, <laughs> it's it is. A struggle. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on Moms No Time to Read Books and sharing your what you learned about. I'm sure you were not as bad a mom as you thought, but <laughs> from everything that you learned and how you were able to turn your parenting around, thank you for letting the rest of us benefit from your experience. Thank you. very kind and generous of you to do. Thank so. you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks to Lauren Passell and her innovative PR company, Tink, for sponsoring today's episode. Please check them out at tinkmedia.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 